unrealistic expectations, and increasing workloads have been present in higher ed for a long time, but have been exacerbated by the pandemic. In this episode, we talk about the realities of burnout and the need for self-care. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Rebecca Polk Ruach. She is the Teaching and Learning Specialist for the Center for Teaching and Learning at Georgia Tech. Rebecca is the author of Agile Faculty, Practical Strategies for Managing Research, Service, and Teaching, the co-editor of Redesigning Liberal Education, Innovative Design for a 21st Century Undergraduate Education, and is currently completing a new book on burnout and women faculty. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan of the show. Happy to have you here. Today's teas are... Rebecca, are you drinking tea? I am. I take teaching and tea very seriously, so I'm drinking PG tips from England this morning. We have some of that in our office. It's a favorite. <laughs> I still have some Christmas tea with cinnamon. Yum. Mm, sounds lovely. And I'm on, I think, my last pot of my loose leaf Scottish breakfast tea. Ooh. We'll have to move on to something else. Yum. I'm a big fan of Irish. The Scottish was a discovery for me during the pandemic, and I've been a little obsessed. <laughs> I'll have to try that. My grandmother's from Scotland, so maybe it's that. I don't know. Yeah, my grandmother's from England, so I gravitate toward the English breakfast. <laughs> We've invited you here to discuss your work on faculty burnout. Perhaps we should begin by describing what burnout looks and feels like. Sure. So the World Health Organization defined burnout recently as a workplace-related syndrome characterized by unrelenting stress that is unmanageable, specifically in the workplace. So that's the definition that we're mostly working from right now. And burnout has three characteristics that you can be on the lookout for. First is exhaustion. So that mental, intellectual, emotional exhaustion, where it's just difficult to get out of bed in the morning because everything is so tiring. The second sign is cynicism or depersonalization. There's cynicism toward the people that you work with, toward the job that you're doing. You stop seeing people really as individuals and they seem more like kind of an amorphous group. And then the last one is this lack of a sense of meaning or accomplishment. It becomes difficult, if not impossible, to see the value of the work that you're doing. We all kind of know what those three things feel like at the end of the semester, but this burnout, as we're defining it by the World Health Organization, is this gained pace of unrelenting stress. And that looks different for everyone. You can look for common signs like pulling away and isolating from the work context, inexplainable anger, an inability to concentrate or sustain thoughts to the level that you're used to and an inability to write for some folks. And that was one of my problems when I went through burnout. So those can be kind of heartbreaking things and not knowing what's going on with that. And then if you don't have a language for burnout, it can often feel like shame because you can't emotionally and intellectually do what you've always done. And the brain just doesn't work that well under that kind of stress. And during a pandemic, those things become much more serious. And a lot of it is people are trying to reach the standards they had set for themselves, but aren't quite able to during these circumstances. And that gets really frustrating. So why do we set such high standards for ourselves and each other at any time, but during a pandemic in particular? 
Well, it's it's endemic to the culture of higher education. The people who are attracted to higher education often come from a kind of a similar personality type, not to say that that's a total stereotype, but we all have kind of a predilection toward achieving and excellence and knowledge and lifelong learning. And those are wonderful things. But when they get taken to a certain extreme, it becomes really difficult to see past this kind of expectation escalation. Every step has to be a little bigger than the last step. And that's an expectation. It's not necessarily just something that we put in our own heads. So higher education culture really does push that on us in a lot of ways. Burnout specifically is really hard in, like I said, the caring work, like healthcare and teaching. And we have to think about what are the positive rewards on that? So sometimes burnout comes from not enough rewards, from not enough positive interactions, and those can be part of the stress. And we have to really think that workplaces cause burnout. The definitions and the research that we see says it is very workplace specific, but that doesn't necessarily mean if you move over to another job that those kinds of things are going to go away, especially in higher education because of the culture, the expectation escalation. There is kind of an unrelenting pace and there's no room to just kind of sit and be content or rest. And one thing I do want to point out too is that burnout itself is not a mental health illness. It's a syndrome associated with stress. So there's more that you can do to manage burnout before it gets bad, if you can catch it early enough. For faculty, referring to what you said earlier, one of the symptoms is perhaps dehumanizing your students. And as you said, treating your students as this amorphous blob rather than as individuals. And I think we often hear some of that in some of our colleagues who've reached their limit by the end of the semester. But when that becomes persistent, it becomes, I think, a more serious issue. Yeah, that was definitely my problem when I went through my own severe burnout. I was a teacher's teacher, right? I mean, that was all I wanted to do. My entire tenure case was built on teaching and scholarship of teaching and learning. So when I started to pull away from my students, when I started to feel very negatively about them and their concerns, I was a tenure track faculty member, tenured for 12 years, plus five years teaching undergraduates as a graduate student. So at that point, you've kind of seen everything in a way it feels like. So the compassion fatigue starts to set in because it becomes repetitive for you. It's the same thing over and over again. And that's exactly where students should be, right? That's their developmental age. Of course, they should be there. The compassion dries up and the empathy starts to dry up. And that's a pretty big sign to look for burnout. How does this impact newer faculty or mid-career faculty differently than faculty that have been around for longer? In some ways, I don't feel like at this point there is a big distinction. I think we can all be prone to it. I think we are all prone to it. I think we probably experience in different ways. By the time I went through my burnout, I was relatively close to going up for full professor and had been successful and was pleased with my career, but it just wasn't the same anymore. I couldn't find joy in it anymore. I started having panic attacks just going to campus. Those are signals to look for. And I think we all go through ebbs and flows. Yes, it was more stressful as a junior faculty member, especially given the expectations of graduate students coming out these days. It's crazy. And what graduate students need to do and be prepared to get those few rare tenure track positions is exponentially bigger than what I had to do when I finished my PhD 14 years ago. And especially in the pandemic, those poor junior faculty are thinking about their tenure clock. They're thinking about their tenure case. They might have caregiving responsibilities at home. When do you have time to write? This kind of unrelenting stress makes it really difficult to focus and difficult to think. And I think a lot of the folks who are being productive now, that's amazing. It could be a coping mechanism that some of us don't have or don't have the luxury of. So I really do feel for junior faculty, especially when all of those things are so uncertain. What's the clock look like? 
how do you account for this time in publication and presentations in your clock? And I think burnout can be kind of common right after receiving tenure for folks because there's that sudden what if, kind of that midlife crisis there too. But it depends on how your workplace is kind of playing out in a lot of ways and the, the people that you're engaging with, the activities that you're doing, things that you are responsible for that you feel like you can't step away from. So I think we can all be prone to burnout at any point if we're not at least on the lookout for it. One of the things that you hinted at and that we've talked about on a previous podcast related to the pandemic is some of the particular challenges that affect women or faculty of color or contingent faculty who may have some of those additional caregiving responsibilities or other things that are happening if they're working from home. Right. And we know from higher education research that women, faculty of color and contingent faculty especially tend to teach larger numbers of students. So they are already doing significantly more emotional labor on our campuses than we might know because it's hidden. It's silent. And these populations are often called to do more significant service, more significant mentoring. So more time means more and more potential for secondary traumas on top of all the quote unquote normal workload and whatever might be going on for them at home as well. It could be childcare, it could be elder care, it could be a number of different things that they didn't expect or they didn't have on their plates necessarily during work hours. So it's going to impact time, it's going to impact attention, the ability to research and write, and it's just a heavy emotional load. Faculty, for the most part, are not trained counselors. We don't have that skill set necessarily, and we shouldn't be asked necessarily to be counselors. But we need some skills to help our students as we're all going through this unrelenting trauma right now. It's impacting all of us. So we have to build up our own mental health and our own resilience to be able to help our students work through what they're going through. And as a woman faculty member, a faculty of color, we work with more students and we see more students and students may be more comfortable talking to us about the struggles that they're having. So how do we engage with them and point them to the resources that they need? We can be empathetic, but if you're not a trained counselor, how do we connect them with the resources that are going to help them? And I think one blessing right now is that student mental health had been an issue that was gaining a lot of attention and a lot of traction in higher ed. So there are much better systems in place at many institutions for student mental health. Those resources are available. So if we know what those are, we can direct our students to them and we can ask them for help in helping our students. But we can't help others if we aren't helping ourselves. How do we take care of ourselves so that we can take care of our students as well, whatever that means for you? What are some strategies that faculty could use to help mitigate burnout, to make it less likely or at least reduce its impact? There's a lot of things we can think about. And depending on how far down the scale you are in burnout, therapy might be the best option. And that's something to talk to your mental health care provider about. Most institutions have EAPs that might offer you some initial conversations with a mental health professional or a coach. So you could take advantage of that to kind of see where you are. Another point of, I don't want to say diagnosis, but another point of maybe a way to kind of see where you are on a scale is to check out the Maslach burnout inventory. Christina Maslach is kind of the bronze arm of burnout research. And she and her colleagues have one of the most validated scales for burnout right now and inventories. So if you Google that, there's a $15 version for educators, and that'll show you where you are on those three dimensions of burnout. So you have a sense of what the challenges are so that you can direct your attention to those specifically. When I took it, I was almost off the charts. 
So I had waited way too long because I didn't have a language for what was happening to me. And I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it because it was shameful. I couldn't think straight anymore. I couldn't decide what to eat for lunch. I had a panic attack when I got near campus. So if you're a kind of a hard charging academic and those things start happening to you, you start questioning what is going on and how do you not display that weakness to other people? So the first thing after therapy, if that's what you need in diagnosis, is connection. And that's one of the earliest things that's going to go because you do start to isolate yourself. But once I started talking about my burnout, people came out of the woodwork, which is both good because people are talking about it and both terrible because there are so many folks who have told me their stories and they're just sad not just as their mental health, but their physical health has been impacted by burnout. So I think we can do a lot of things. Connection is the first thing. And that might be talking to a trusted circle of folks around you that may or may not be in higher education, reaching out to folks in your counseling center, if those are available, reaching out to your centers for teaching and learning and faculty development. They might have coaching opportunities for you. Or I know that my institution, we're talking about how we can develop some programming for our faculty that they can come into and get a conversation and see that they're not alone, which is a big part of starting recovery, honestly. So some of the things that I do recommend are redefining what your sense of productivity is. We talked a little earlier about that sense of expectation escalation. Once you've written a paper in this journal, you need to get into a better journal. You need to get into another better journal. Then you need to get a book contract. And once that book is out, everything else needs to be a book with a better publisher. It's almost never ending. When do we be content? I talked to one faculty member who was at an institution where the administration felt like there weren't enough women in full professorships, so they wanted to hold events to convince women to go up for full professor. But many of the women at that institution were content where they were, and they had fulfilling careers, they had fulfilling family lives, they were happy at that spot in their career, which is sometimes kind of rare, I think, you know, to feel that kind of contentedness. So why push that just for kind of a sense of, it almost feels like kind of a performativity of that. So rethink what productivity means. The uncertainty seems never ending. Now that the vaccines are out, I think maybe we have some hope that there's an end in sight, but that doesn't necessarily make it easier to write right now or do your research, especially if you're doing research with people that you can interact with right now, whether that's colleagues or contributors or a population that you study, right? It's difficult. So what can you do now and what is reasonable and I think there needs to be transparency with administration at this point. They need to be having conversations about what's reasonable right now when we're going through this. Not that this year is a total waste by any stretch, but we need to temper expectations for what productivity means and what we can realistically do right now. Some other options are setting some boundaries for yourself. Self-care is a buzzword. We all talk about self-care. I need to take care of myself, but we often think of it in a very superficial way. I'm going to get a massage. I'm going to get a pedicure. I'm going to go fishing for the weekend. And those are wonderful things, but they don't necessarily take care of you in the long run. They don't necessarily take care of your mental health in the long run. So setting boundaries is one of the key ways that you can take care of yourself. Brené Brown talks a lot about boundary setting and how to hold those boundaries. So that's a resource to look into. But if we set boundaries for ourselves, we can model that for others as well, right? We can't start changing the culture of productivity until we all start thinking about what we're doing and how we do it and how we model those things for folks who are upcoming. Sometimes setting boundaries can be difficult, at least initially, but I've discovered, and I think others will discover this too, that if you start small, it becomes a habit and you can make bigger boundaries. And it really does help to have those boundaries either in time or 
expectation boundaries in terms of how fast you'll respond to students. And once you have the boundaries set and you are okay with them, it's pretty easy for other people to respect them, but you have to respect them yourself. Yes, absolutely. It's like setting that time aside in your calendar or really committing to not checking email after 5 p.m. and those kinds of things that we just kind of take for granted. It's so hard. (laughs) It really is. And sharing those with your students can be helpful, too, so that they know they should not expect a response at 2 a.m. or at 6 a.m. Because otherwise, they might feel neglected if they don't get an immediate response. But if they know that there are certain times when you will not be responding, they're much more willing to accept it. Or even sharing that your response time is at a weird time. I respond at 5 a.m. because I have a small child and that's when I can. Yeah, whatever boundary works for you. I do have to say our administration has been really good about this. Our provost at the end of his email has a message saying he does not expect responses out of work hours or over weekends. I don't remember the exact wording, but basically he's letting us know that we don't have to respond right away. He's writing to us when he has a free moment, but he expects us to do it when we have time during our regular work time. The Dean of Arts and Sciences have been wonderful in working with faculty and encouraging them to take breaks, to do other things, to get away. And that's been really helpful for faculty here. One thing that I think people can find helpful, too, is hobbies. And I think sometimes when we're kind of in the rush and the hustle and the bustle, we let those things go by the wayside. But if you have a hobby or a pastime that is kind of encompassing and that helps turn your brain around, I ride horses. My husband has motorcycles. So those are things that you have to focus on. You don't want to not be mentally present if you're on a horse. (laughs) It's not some place you want to be. So hobbies, whether it's painting or music or garage science, whatever it is that makes you turn that brain off and think about things in a very different way can be extremely helpful for your mental health as well. And fun. Yes. (laughs) Let yourself have fun. Imagine that. I'm a terrible horseback rider. I'm never going to compete, but it's fun. So let yourself have that. When you see competition everywhere, I mean, that's a feature of higher education as well, because there's always someone who's a little bit better than you doing a little bit more than you that becomes the bar. And going back to that idea of how can we be content where we are, striving is good. Lifelong learning is good. But when it becomes this unrelenting pursuit without a purpose behind it, that's when we need to stop and think because burnout can be close behind that. You've also suggested in some of your writing that during a pandemic, we should accept some degree of mediocrity in our work, that we can expect to deliver our courses in the same way we're used to or necessarily at a very high level of quality. I think that's a very helpful suggestion. Yeah, and I get kind of in trouble for using the word mediocrity. But as academics, you know, our standards are very high, whether that's in your research or your teaching and service. Really, what I'm arguing is take a step back or take two steps back. We are not in a place as a society where we can have really deep thoughts for many of us. And the more we beat ourselves up for that, the worse it's going to get. And the worse burnout is going to chase you, in addition to all the trauma that we're getting from the pandemic and all the social injustice in the world. Really what I mean is taking a couple steps back. You can still be rigorous. You can still do good courses. Your students can still learn in whatever context. If you are flexible in ways that you might not have been before, I think common humanity is really important. We may be seeing the humanity of our students in very different ways, and they're seeing our humanity in very different ways now. And that's a good thing because they know that we're not robots and they're not alone in the things that they're feeling and that we're concerned, we're struggling, we are experiencing the burnout that they may be experiencing as well. So if we can be human with them, if we can lower some of our standards, and again, that sounds bad. You don't want to lower your standards, but you can get there in different ways. There might be different ways than high stakes exams, for example, which we know are already very complicated 
emotionally and intellectually when you're doing them in a fully remote course, for example. There's a lot of things there to consider. So how can we help our students learn in ways that are productive, maybe a little bit more fun, but still focus on the learning and the learning objective rather than what you have always done in the past? And your students will appreciate that too. And that's not a bad strategy under any circumstances, but especially during this pandemic. But just as faculty are experiencing burnout, so are many of our students. I know a lot of students sort of faded away, and we heard the story from many of our colleagues this past fall that students were getting burnt out from all the hours they were spending in Zoom. And what they felt was an increase in the amount of work demanded from them, which may or may not have been the case, but certainly it felt that way to them. What can we do to help our students avoid burnout? You've suggested that a little bit by doing some things that are a little more engaging and perhaps more fun ways than just taking high stakes exams. Not that there's much that could be more fun than that. (laughs) But what can we do to help our students get through this, perhaps while still meeting those learning objectives? Well, I think the first thing we can do is listen to them. So I have a lot of colleagues who are maybe weekly doing very short check-ins with their students, maybe via a Canvas survey or a Qualtrics, just how are you doing? Where are you in this unit? What's still unclear to you? Those kinds of things. So they're checking in on their student stresses regularly. And these aren't long surveys by any stretch. You can do more active learning with your students. I think one of the reasons that students might be feeling like there's more work is that when we're switching to more lower stakes assignments and more of those, it seems like more work because you now have 10 homeworks instead of two giant tests. So it feels like more work. So I think part of it is really looking honestly at what you're asking your students to do and is it comparable? Because it should be comparable or even maybe a little less. But if you have other opportunities for them to engage, whether it's in the hybrid environment or in a remote environment, that there are different ways for them to engage the material, to engage with you and explain why you're doing things the way you're doing them. Why is this a group project? Why are you doing these smaller quizzes instead of the big tests? And focus on the learning aspects of those, not the, I'm not doing big tests because cheating is rampant. That's not going to help anyone. (laughs) So I'm doing this because it'll help you learn over time and it'll help me see how you're doing and check in with you. And we're all going to get to where we were going. We're just going to get there maybe differently than we would if we were all face-to-face all the time. One of the things that I started noticing or that students were disclosing to me is that having more asynchronous opportunities was feeling like more work because they weren't used to having to manage their time. So although maybe the same amount of time was being spent on task, it wasn't being curated in the same way. They might come into the classroom and do some active learning during class time, and maybe we were expecting them to do something similar outside of class on their own. But now that just felt like crazy big ask. And when you move big class discussions to a discussion board, suddenly they have to write things instead of have a conversation. So that does feel like more work. And in some ways it is especially when it's asynchronous, because then it's over time, you have to keep going back to this discussion rather than having it in class for an hour. So I think we just have to think about some of the realities associated with this. And I think we have to be listening to the folks who are experts in online education. It's a different medium. There's a lot of different pedagogical challenges and opportunities. But that's another faculty stressor right now is many of us are completely switching and flipping and hybridizing in ways that we never expected to be doing. So it's another case of common humanity, right? So you can tell your students that this is unusual for you. You're learning along with them in that sense. So that feedback from them is really helpful to make sure that they're learning the way you want them to be learning and working toward the course objectives, but still in a fair and consistent way with the learning objectives. I'm noticing behind you that you're practicing what you preach with a backlog and works in progress and done. Looks like an agile project board. 
<laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how some of the strategies in agile faculty might help in addressing burnout? Sure. I think when you distill agile faculty and the process down to its core, it's about prioritizing and breaking things down into small chunks of work. I mean, that's at the basic. You can layer the other things on top of it and the processes and the meetings. But I think visualizing the work, breaking down the work into small doable chunks. The example that I like to use is if you write literature review on your to-do list, it's going to stay there for months and it's going to haunt you because there are a million little things you need to do to write a lit review. But if you break those down and you visualize them like the board behind me, and I can send everybody an image of that for the show notes if that's helpful. When you break them down and you see them, it doesn't feel like you need eight hours of totally open time to do this thing. This thing might take an hour. This thing might take a half an hour. And it builds up over time and you can see that. And seeing that visual progress is a wonderful psychological boost, especially if you use a physical board. I would love to do a study about what psychologically happens to people when they move sticky notes on a board. My students regularly cheer when they move something into the dumb column. They feel that success. So breaking things down as small as you can, realistically, of course, and then prioritizing what you can do now and then just working consistently on small chunks when you have time. And you also mentioned that there are a number of apps available for those people who are working on activities in groups. Could you share some of the apps that people might use for collaborative work online during this time? Yeah, I mean, you always have Google Suites that's helpful. Trello is a board software that I know people use that you can set up lanes and things like you can on a board if you need to do that digitally. Padlet might be another thing that you might be able to use. I love Mentimeter, so I'm trying to think if there's a connection to Mentimeter, but I'm not sure that there is. <laughs> I don't think that there is. Jamboard, maybe? Yeah, probably. Anything that kind of looks like a digital whiteboard and those kinds of things where you can put squares or sticky notes or things like that, you can use. I'm a big proponent of a physical board, but that's completely unrealistic right now. So something like Trello doesn't have a huge learning curve. Padlet does not have a huge learning curve. So those are softwares that are available free that students can use and that you can use with your research teams. And the nice thing about the boards as well when they're digital, especially for student teams and for research teams too, is that when you as a faculty member have access to those, you can keep track about what students are accomplishing and not in a surveillance way, but in a learning way. Okay, they seem stuck here. This thing hasn't moved for a while. So I'm going to have a conversation with this group or most of the group seems stuck in this particular piece of the assignment. So let's have a conversation about that. So it opens up opportunities for just-in-time learning as well when you can physically see their progress. I've used Trello with students and they had no problem catching on to how to use it. You can also make templates to get them started. So if they've never done any project management like that before, you can get them going pretty easily, which can be really helpful too. And they really appreciated learning how to manage their time. And this is a way to manage their time, just like faculty sometimes need to learn how to manage their time. Yeah, I frequently talk to faculty who it kind of occurs to them when they attend one of my workshops that they just assume that their students knew how to collaborate. They teach students how to write a lab report. They teach students how to give a good speech, those kinds of things. We don't teach them necessarily how to manage their time or to collaborate successfully. And even just spending a little time on that can pay huge learning dividends for the students. So we need to think about some of those things that we take for granted. Are there any other topics that you'd like to address that we haven't addressed yet? Yeah, I think I would like to just remind people that we need to normalize burnout through having the conversations about it, that this is not something that's shameful, especially now we're all struggling and it's not even creeping up on us anymore. It's there and it's present and is something that you can recognize. It is something that you can deal with the signs of. And across that spectrum, there's a variety of ways to do that. But I think we need to normalize the conversation, but we need to change the culture that makes it normal. 
this is a cultural issue. Workplaces lead to burnout. Yes, as members of that culture, we perpetuate it, but it's not going to change unless we really start arguing against it, modeling different things for our junior faculty, for our graduate students, for our undergraduate students, and make those changes that live up to the values of lifelong learning and the pursuit of knowledge in ways that don't become so competition-based and kind of so capitalistic that we don't lose track of the real reason and the purpose that we're there. Yeah, this is so important. And I think right now, during the pandemic, people are a little more willing to start to shift the culture. And so although we don't want to always say that there's a silver lining with a pandemic, it's one of those places where it's a strategic time to start making change. Yes, absolutely. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? But that sounds very, very, very perpetuating (laughs) of such a culture. It could be fun. (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to a quiet Christmas with my husband and Zooming with my family as much as possible (laughs) over the break. I will be working on the burnout book and I'm starting my own podcast. So I'm playing with that, which is a lot of fun. So that's what I'll be doing. Hopefully reading some books and trying to set boundaries for when I do work and, and when I let myself relax. Could you tell us a little bit about this podcast? I'm calling it The Agile Academic. It's a podcast for women in higher education, and it's going to be an interview show. I'm going to launch it in January. And really, it's just an excuse for me to talk to really cool women in higher education and around the higher education space. I think, again, one of the silver linings that we hate to call silver linings is I feel like I have reached out to talk to more people than I ever would have without this, to have conversations with people I admire that I follow on Twitter that I would love to just have a conversation with. I was enjoying that so much that I said, why don't we record these and let other people kind of peek into these conversations? So the first season will be out in mid-January, and I'm really excited about it. It's a lot of fun. Sounds really exciting. Have you set up a site yet? Yeah. For right now, if you just send them to RebeccaPopeRewark.com, that'll get them to the main site. And then there's a tab right now that says, listen to me, which is kind of collected stuff. (laughs) And I'll put the podcast on there too. I look forward to listening to that. I am too. And we started the podcast mostly to do some professional development. But one of the things I think I've enjoyed the most, and I think Rebecca has too, is the ability to do exactly that, to talk to some of the people we admire the most and who are doing some really interesting work that we'd like to learn more about. I've wanted to do one for a long time, but I've realized very quickly that I don't like talking to myself. You know, (laughs) if you're going to write a script, I'm a writer. So by the time I have a script, that's like six blog posts. (laughs) So why would I record it? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm excited with the interviews. I'm talking to some great ladies. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing some really good advice. I hope the conversation about burnout really does open up and that more people have the conversation, see it as normal, and that we start to really shift that culture. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We're looking forward to your new book. And I think we both really appreciated your past work. Rebecca's actually used some of this in her classes. Oh, great. Great. I hope it worked well for you. Definitely. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.